Welcome to this week's episode of Questions You Didn't Ask. We are so excited to collaborate with the Reagan Udall Foundation for the FDA to explore advancing accurate representation and research. We are speaking with Dr. Carla Rodriguez-Watson, Dr. Nadine Barrett, and Dr. Alicia Clary to learn more about how diversity and equity in research is vital to effective cures and how it leads to better patient advocacy and health outcomes. Let's continue the conversation. Alicia, from our work in RAISE, how do we best articulate and help folks think through how we are able to provide appropriate responses for people to be able to define and and represent the part of themselves that will answer a question that they can also provide with some sense of security about how those data will be used and how those data will be protected. Yeah, thanks so much for the, the question, Carla. You know, first, I'd like to start by acknowledging that researchers, scientists, and clinicians, we all need to be sensitive about what we're asking and why. Uh, we know that as you ask people more questions, the, the number or the percent of missing responses goes up, but also we see that accuracy begins to, to decline. So being really specific right. and intentional in all the questions that we're asking about race, ethnicity, sex assigned at birth, gender, and any SDOH variables we may be interested in. Regarding options, and you know, this, this probably applies to some of the other sociodemographic variables as well. In RAISE, we heard that there were some systems that were grappling with, with options. They were hearing from patients and really experiencing in their data that they, on one hand, there is a, the possibility of offering folks too few options, so they don't see themselves represented in the categories. Mm. But on the other hand, that sometimes you can present people too many options. And I think, in, you know, that term has been mm-hmm. coined death by a thousand clicks. And in, in, in wow. both cases, you see that people will not respond to the question, um, mm. either because they don't see themselves or they don't want to click through 500 response categories. And so there really is this opportunity to align your data collection options and your tools with the local context. But as Carla mentioned, we still do need to be able to use that data and we need to be able to facilitate comparisons within a study that might be pre and post between studies, between populations or over time. And so the data does then need to be able to be aggregated into some meaningful level where we can draw inferences, make comparisons, and and really be able to to use the data toward improving population health. Exactly. And and to be able to preserve in some way, in a very protected way, what was the original response? Because we all know that with all these systems, we're not just dealing with Duke Healthcare. Duke Healthcare is is incorporating all the clinical information from its laboratories, radiologies, and all the vendors that are contributing to that. And that's being passed into other networks and so on and so forth. And we need to be able to understand how did the person originally respond to the question of race and ethnicity? Because as we know, even though the the federal standards allow us to respond multiple times to that question of race and ethnicity, but they are not prescriptive of how that information is captured and carried. And so that's up to the individual systems and it gets lumped and split in ways that 
are not exactly transparent to everyone. And, you know, Carl, I think that also brings up or, or raises raises um, <laughs> another good point in that race and ethnicity are not static concepts. So even when we're thinking about the lumping and the splitting and different systems having different data within each individual person, their response option may change over time. And that mm -hmm. may be dependent on how they see themselves or how they think mm -hmm. that the world sees them. But that also just may be reflective of the options that they were chosen at, at that time. And so mm -hmm. our data collection and transfer systems need to be flexible enough to, to accommodate all the nuances that, that accompany these and other kinds of demographic data. Great point, Alicia. Yeah. Well, I wanted to add a little something to the conversation too. And excuse me, Carla, if, if you were getting ready to go there, but I think some of the hesitation too comes from people like you had mentioned, Alicia, in regard to there can be too few choices or too many choices, right? So there's diversity within diversity, right? So I think to Nadie's point about being culturally competent, even as a Black woman myself, I don't know everything there is to know or understand about what it is to be Black because Blackness exists all across the globe and it shows up in different ways and it has different layers and ethnicities and different things like that, even regions within the same country. So I'm not trying to make this even more complicated than what it is. But I do want to recognize, you know, kind of what your what what the responsibility is to understand that yes, as we're measuring things over time, even within an individual, they can come to understand themselves or identify themselves differently. And so I just am throwing that out there as a as a point, an important point in this discussion about what does it mean to have accurate representation in research. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I think it's interesting too with, with Carla and um, Alicia's points, which are, are really important. You know, when we talk about ethnicity, for example, in, for ethnicity categories, we either say you're Hispanic or you're not, right? And yet there's so yeah, many different yeah. ethnic groups mm -hmm. within multiple races, right? And so I know we were in a meeting not too long ago, and that was a big conversation point because it's almost like ethnicity sometimes gets reduced to language and Spanish speaking mm -hmm. or not. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and, and as opposed to truly a measure of ethnicity or ethnicities, if I would say. So even that alone, depending on what region of the country we're in, that ethnic category, even if it's uh, Latino, Hispanic or not, it, it still may not even resonate that those those categories for that region. Right. So, again, I think that there's there's a, a, a lot of challenges in our data collection and I can see clearly where people feel like they don't see themselves and others cannot understand sometimes I, well, this is a category of asking about ethnicity, but it's really asking whether I'm Spanish or not. It's not asking about my ethnicity, if I'm African, for example, or Hmong, for example. So again, just really recognizing that as a limitation and an opportunity for us to think about how do we do better in recognizing the intersectionalities that also intersect with ethnicity. So true. Yeah. I mean, often as a as a Filipina American, I always never understood quite the concept of the two the binary choice of be, my yes. ethnicity being Hispanic <laughs> or non-Hispanic. But yes. you know, I think it's it's we talked about this in one of our raised workshops, really about how one group, one EHR vendor, is dealing with this situation. They are a national vendor, 
and they do. Okay, Carla, I'm going to step in for our audience, not to cut you off, but okay. remember, not everybody knows our lingo. So what is EHR again? <laughs> <laughs> One electronic health record vendor that we spoke to works with their clients based on the geographic location and understanding of the population and works with the, you know, their system clients to understand what are the um, populations that you are caring for and presents standard coatings. They have, there's very, there's more elaborate standard coatings than the current five categories uh, provided by the Office of Management and Budget. One of them is the Center for Disease Control's value set. It includes around 900 constructs, but of course, no one wants to see 900 constructs is going to flip through all those, those, those um, categories, as Alicia suggested. So it, it does involve and implore the data designers, the system designers to work with their communities, their community advisory boards, as we think about, you know, taking this concept that Nadine described through her trust studies, but working with your community to help define, you know, what are those, what is a population and where do we have to drill down and provide these more granular categories so that people can see how they relate to these responses. And there's a meaningful exchange and, and trust in that if you took the time to understand my pop, my community and my population and provide this, you know, then that goes a long way to under, to supporting trust in being able to both answer the question and trust in that this data are going to be used to continue to work with my community to define what health health equity looks like and improve upon the health status of my community. I think we heard from some of our speakers on RAISE a lot about, I don't really care about improving, you know, the health metrics for, to meet certain deliverables of the health system. I care about improving the health of my community. So there's definitely mm. a gap in there that mm. needs to be aligned. And, you know, speaking of incentives, I think as you've been talk all talking about uh, community-based clinical trials, There's this is going along the lines of this move towards home-based care. And, you know, the research yes. around home-based care really speaks to being able yeah. to understand more about not just the person, the individual's health status, but their environmental situation and their conditions and being able to advocate for that. And I think we'll lend a lot towards collecting better data and being able to be more attuned and aligned with the needs of the communities, both practically in terms of their clinical care, but also being able to understand how that can influence research and how to bring research to these populations in a, in a more robust way than we've been able to in the past. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think the, the points that, that were made just now by um, Carl and Alicia uh, were great ones when we think about language in particular, uh, to ensure that if when we're doing studies that we're really mindful of what are the predominant languages in our region and being able to ensure that the, the, <clears throat> the surveys, et cetera, that we're creating 
are available in multiple languages. So I think that that's really important. So for example, one of the projects I did was Project Place, where I have 23 community partners involved in a partnership. And through that survey, we reached the Chinese. So it was available in Mandarin as well. I was available in English and in Spanish. Uh, and we also did specific engagement with the Muslim community here, which was amazing because then we ended up doing a whole bunch of other things with the Muslim community. And also recognizing that it's not just engaging with them for the purpose of research, but they actually told me to come to their service and invited me to come. And I was like, absolutely. And it actually, for someone who does so much work in implicit bias <laughs> that I do, uh, mm-hmm. in systemic and structural racism, it was such a powerful moment to walk in there. Wow. In my head, I didn't even think I had a view of what I was going to 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 experience. Mm-hmm. I thought I was going to, you know, at least I didn't think, I didn't consciously think about it. But mm-hmm. when I went in, when I saw the diversity of people at the mosque during the service, wow. it was mind blowing to me. Black, white, African, people who were from all kinds of backgrounds. There were even mm-hmm. some people who were Asian who were Muslim that were there. So it was really mind blowing to me because mm-hmm. it really just shattered this um, image I had in the back of my head of what mm-hmm. to experience. And that actually took us to a whole different level. And, and, and what was beautiful is when the imam asked me what was the most um, powerful experience of you being here with us today. And I shared that. I said, you really kind of helped me to, again, see that when we say Muslim, we have a very clear picture in this country of what that looks like. Um, mm-hmm. But it's not, it's very inaccurate. It's very inaccurate. And so, um, so again, when we think about engaging communities, really be mindful of what we think that means and what mm-hmm. it actually is, maybe two very different things as well. And us doing the work, the life journey work to ensure that we're reaching our patients in, in incredible healthcare, and we're reaching them in incredible ways to ensure that they also have access to research. And I love what you said there, because it it harkens to something that I commonly say about my career is that I am what I do. And that example, Nadine, is for our colleagues in the research community and the healthcare um, ecosystem to make sure that those relationships are bi-directional and mm-hmm. challenge yourself to be transformed through those relationships, to recognize that you are a part of the system and that in order to improve the system, we oftentimes have to sh- stretch ourselves beyond our comfort zone or our routine, right? So, Because it, it doesn't sound like you were uncomfortable at all with the idea of attending, but it was, mm-hmm. it was a different part of your day that you have not, you know, participated in before. And I think that that by being embedded in the community, that we have the opportunity to be better caregivers, better researchers, and better people as a whole. I just really love that example. Yeah, yeah, it was really, really enlightening and a wonderful experience. So when we think about race and ethnicity, something that we've heard a lot about is that race and ethnicity might not be the right question to be asking to understand some of our uh, some of these differences in in healthcare status or the questions that we have about health but we do know that race and ethnicity are kind of blunt tools to be asking and we use this as kind of a as a measure to start doing some hypothesis generation about what really is it that we're asking so in this desire to get at some of these social determinants of health, how is it really contributing to the question that we're trying to answer? 
I think one of the tool, one of the things people talk about a lot in terms of access is we'll just ask about uh, socioeconomic status, but we still know that even when we're thinking about maternal mortality, more highly educated Black women mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. have a threefold higher risk yes. of maternal mortality than the lowest income level white woman. So mm-hmm. something about mm-hmm. race is still residual confounding in some way right. because it's not being fully accounted for when we talk about either education, mm-hmm. level of education, or income. So mm-hmm. it's still a very necessary uh, demographic to be capturing and really understanding how it contributes. And maybe in the future, we'll be able to parse that out better. Mm-hmm. But I think for now, it's still an important component. But I'd love to hear what uh, Dr. Barrett and Dr. Clary have to say. Oh, man. <laughs> Carla, you're amazing. What a great question um, and a great point to raise. Um, and I, I think you said it so perfectly. You know, there's all kinds of policies, as we know, right, in Florida, Texas, now North Carolina as well, that's kind of wanted to ignore the fact of the historical legacy of racism in this country and, and really moving away from recognizing equity, diversity, inclusion activities and work can no longer really speak to that history, right? And we know that history is very much so current and, and you hit it right on the head. There's a ton of research that shows that race, when you control for all other factors, race stands out. Even in sociology, uh, uh, Judas Wilson, he a long time ago wrote a book called The Declining Significance of Race. And his idea was that race was no longer really important, but it was more socioeconomic status. Fast forward a few years later, he wrote exactly. another book that, that came back and challenged his own thought and said, actually, I was wrong, basically. Race is still very much so um, significant mm-hmm. and primary in mm-hmm. this work. So I think it's uh, it seems to be interesting. Some people in, rec- in our research spaces, me included, speak about this kind of anti-racism, anti-Blackness space that seems to be happening now where we really don't want to talk about race. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is that as long as we are trying to address health equity and health inequities, Let's try and see what we do if we take race out of the conversation. <laughs> uh, we won't get anywhere, right? Right. Uh, if we if we really try to not, like, how do you not measure these factors that are so predominant in being predictors of the worst health outcomes and social determinants of health, which includes it includes education, social mobility, access to um to to uh, envi- safe environments. I mean, all of these factors play out, and um, race definitely plays a key part of that. So it, it is, it's an important question. And if anyone tries to, can, as people continue to try to move away from that, it, it's simply just moving away from facing the realities of our historic and current legacy in this country. And it really, it really, really impacts the social determinants of health, which are, are keenly, highly predicted by race and ethnicity as well. I couldn't have said it better than Dr. Barrett, but but I'll add, not only is understanding and, and continuing to add, to collect information about race and ethnicity important, there is an opportunity for us to learn from what we are experiencing to better, more accurately and more completely collect these data to apply it to some of the other sociodemographic feature, or so, some of the other sociodemographic Variables um, and some of the other SDOH variables. 
definitely still interested in continuing to learn more about race and ethnicity data, but if we can then use that information to reduce the barriers to collecting other variables and, and other data, um, there's an opportunity there as well. <laughs> I was just going to say that absolutely agree. It's not a this or that kind of answer. Definitely think that the work we did in race, specifically on race and ethnicity, has a lot of applicability to the other sociodemographic variables, like you said, and that we're hoping to build this platform to be able to improve the capture of all of these because they, they answer different questions. But thank you for both bo to both of you for clarifying the need for information still on race and ethnicity data. Yeah, it's critical. It's a, it's a critical aspect. We can't ignore it. And we also find that when you do, when we do include race and ethnicity in any of our research, and we actually come up with actionable solutions that are effective, it benefits everyone. So it's not that it just benefits uh, uh, Latino Hispanic populations or Black populations, but it actually benefits all. And we've seen that in all kinds of areas, both in healthcare, but also in affirmative action activities as well, where white women were also not getting access to uh, education and access to jobs at the same rate as their white male counterparts. Mm -hmm. And yet once affirmative action came into place, they were the number one beneficiaries of it, even though the whole focus of it was around people of color, particularly black, black populations. And so it, it, when, when we focus on all with a recognition of the historical legacy and structures that have been very much so based on our race, then, then, then everyone benefits. But when we take that out, it really limits the impact of really truly getting equity for everyone in that space. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Questions You Didn't Ask. We are so excited to collaborate with the Reagan Udall Foundation for the FDA to explore advancing accurate representation and research. We're speaking with Dr. Carla Rodriguez Watson, Dr. Nadine Barrett, and Dr. Alicia Clary to learn more about how diversity and equity in research is vital to effective cures and how it leads to better patient advocacy and health outcomes. This is a necessary conversation for providers, patients, well, for all of us. Thank you for tuning in and be sure to come back next week as we continue the conversation on Questions You Didn't Ask.